You're listening to the Kindling Rhythms podcast by Restore Houston Church. In John chapter 21, Jesus built a kindling fire for his friend Peter, who was at a low place in his life. His shame and failures were defining everything for him. But Jesus will not let shame and failure have the last word in Peter's life. And in an act of love, Jesus built a kindling fire to serve as a meeting place between himself and Peter. A broken Peter meets with Jesus around this fire, and Jesus gently restores Peter, showing him love, giving him grace, and empowering him to live the life that Jesus had called him to. In this beautiful moment, the whole direction of Peter's life changes. Kindling Rhythm strives to follow in the tradition of that same kindling fire that Jesus built for Peter. By creating a meeting space where your shame and failure give way to the love of Jesus. Where grace restores even the most broken parts of your life and you can find rest knowing that he deeply cares for you. May you also, just like Peter, find him in this space. Hey, um, hello meeting houses. <laughs> we have, um, uh, we've made it through the Day of Atonement. So... Um, the Day of Atonement is really that central piece to the book of Leviticus that um, sheds light on so much of not only the rest of the Bible, but um, most importantly, um, God's heart for us, um, his love for us, his care for us, this abundance life that he has for us, his grace for us, his forgiveness for us, his compassion towards us, his mercy he shows us, all of these things um, we can see taking shape in the book of Leviticus and um, begins to shed light on so much of the rest of um, of Scripture and who God's heart is and his relationship with us. So um, the book of Leviticus is, um, I know it's, it's really intimidating and it's foreign, um, but one of the things that I just, I want us to just keep in mind um, with the book of Leviticus is that it's all about symbolism. Okay, so um, it's all about what the, the different things that we're reading, the blood, the goats, the day of atonement, the tent of meeting, the wilderness, all of these different things symbolize things. They're, God's trying to teach his people, help his people understand who he is, and he's using things that are relatable to them based on their culture uh, and their understanding. And, and, and that's actually, just broadly speaking, one of the most beautiful things about the book of Leviticus um, and can be so encouraging for those of us who are Christians today. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, if you think about it, so all a lot of these customs and these rituals and these practices that we are um, reading about, you know, the the Day of Atonement, the blood rituals, the the putting sending the goat into the wilderness, all of these things, these rituals um, were not things that were invented by God, nor things that were invented by God's people. Many of these rituals, and if you start digging around in archaeology and biblical studies, which is a really fascinating field for academics right now, um, you actually begin to see that a lot of these other cultures were already practicing many of these rituals that we read about in Leviticus. 
So the, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Babylonians, um, all of these other ancient, the ancient Assyrians, all of these groups of ancient people also were practicing many of these customs and these rituals. Uh, and so they weren't something that was um, invented by God or his people necessarily, um, but were actually things that were happening in the culture around them. Now the difference is, the difference is all of these rituals and these customs, God takes and he puts a slight twist on it. And he says, you've become accustomed to sacrifice for this purpose, but let me show you, um, sacrifice is not about you taking the thing that is most dear to you, which in some of the um, other cultures in that world were things like their children. They're actually taking their children and sacrificing them to the gods in order to earn the gods' favor or, 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 pleasure, or um, to please the gods, to um, manipulate the gods. And God turns this around and says, actually, um, this is me providing for you. I'm providing this, these goats and this blood for you um, so that you can understand my love for you, my compassion for you, my grace for you. Um, because even as we move through uh, the, the, the rest of Scripture, it's interesting because it doesn't take us very long to get to some of the prophets that say, you know what, it, this, this whole religious practice that you've got going on as God's people was never about the bulls and the goats. It was never about the rituals and the customs. Um, it, it was about understanding God's heart. And then eventually we move into the New Testament. So the book that was written after Jesus has come, uh, and we hear in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us, uh, we know that bulls and goats don't take away sin. God takes away sin. It's not about the bulls and the goats. And so um, if you're like, well, if we arrive to where it's not about the bulls and the goats, why is it so much about the bulls and the goats in Leviticus? Uh, and that's what's one of the things that's so beautiful about this. Uh, and I just, I hope that this can encourage you the way that it does encourage me, um, is that regardless of, of uh, where we are in our understanding, right? So whether we've been following Jesus our whole life, whether we've just maybe started that process, or maybe we are still exploring that process but aren't quite sure, uh, God meets us where we are at. So he meets his people in the book of Leviticus based on their cultural practices and customs and understanding. So remember, you got to put yourself back in the ancient world. If the if God's people, if God was calling out his group of people, well, they've been living among these other nations for centuries now. They've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And so they've observed all kinds of religious culture, religious cultural practices and customs and rituals. And so they have in their minds um, a certain understanding on how man approaches God or how man uh, appeals to God or um, manipulates God or approaches God. Like they've got this understanding. And so rather than just totally show up and just completely try to, to flip everything on its head, on the, on its head, which I think would have overwhelmed his people, God in his own humility and in his grace and in his gentleness and in his meekness shows up and meets them where they are at based on their understanding, which involved a whole lot of ritual and sacrifices and all of these types of things. God moves into their world. And you see how beautiful that is. So um, 
one of the things that I think a lot of us um, feel when we approach Bible studies or church is that we are, in fact, moving into God's world, and we've got to understand it right. So um, one of the things that I have commonly encountered when I, being in ministry and being a pastor is, is people who are like, you know, I, I would love to start a Bible study or lead this thing or try this thing, but I don't know enough. Uh, I don't understand enough. And so for a lot of us, whether we're leading stuff or maybe even just in our meeting house discussions, um, you're at a place where you're like, I've got some, I've got some insight here. Or maybe um, I'd like to share my perspective here, but I don't think I know enough. So I'm just not going to say anything. And so for many of us, we view church and religion and Christianity as us moving into God's world, trying to get it all right so that we can understand God correctly and then move in to, to know him more and to have a relationship with him and clean up our act enough so that we can move in and have a relationship with him. Um, but I think the book of Leviticus tells us the exact opposite is that we don't move into God's world, God moves into ours. And so the whole book of Leviticus is about God showing up with this broken group of people who have all of these um, understandings of how they ought to be relating to God. And he shows up and he says, I'm going to make a way for you to know me and to live with me in my presence. I'm coming to live among you. And so what's so beautiful about that, um, and I just, I just love the way that God does this with our heart, is that he takes our understanding of him as we understand him, and he works with that. He doesn't demand that we somehow, right? Like he doesn't demand that we take a seminary course before we can begin to follow him, or we got to read through the whole Bible before we can lead a Bible study um, or something like that, right? And so many of us, I think, uh, have fear in our lives um, over engaging our faith in a deeper way, maybe sharing the hope of Jesus with our coworkers or our loved ones or our family members or our friends, um, or maybe speaking into a situation where you feel like, I feel pretty strongly this is God's heart for this person in this situation. Um, and for a lot of us, maybe we, we kind of shy away from that because we have this fear of, what if I jump in and I don't say things right? or I don't have a complete understanding. And so um, while I'm not advocating for ignorant bliss to be like, well, I guess it doesn't matter. I'm just going to, right? That's not necessarily what I'm advocating for. But what I am saying is that um, I think the book of Leviticus can, for us just as Christians in the first century, um, can really free us from the fear of we've got to get it all right before we go to God. We've got to get it all right before we start serving God, before we can do things like lead communion or lead a meeting house or all of these things. I've got to understand all of this more. And the, and the reality is the book of Leviticus tells us that it's just not true. Because God takes all of these customs and these practices which a lot of the other nations were doing. And he takes them and he uses them because his people are familiar with them. And he turns them and he just, he puts a twist on it. And so these sacrifices don't become about you um, earning God's favor or um, getting into a place where he can accept you, but rather they show that he's already accepting you because of his love for you, um, because of his grace for you. And that's what he says after the end of, of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 17. I'm the one providing this blood. 
I'm doing this for you. You're not doing this for me. Like you can, you can free yourself of the burden of trying to get it all right in life with me and trying to like make sure you cross all of your T's and dot all of your I's um, spiritually speaking, like you can, you can free yourself from that burden, uh, and know that it's me that's coming to you. And I'm going to take your understanding and your culture and your experiences. And I'm going to begin to use those things, uh, to shape and, and mold you and, and build you into someone who bears my image, who reflects my glory and my love and my compassion and my grace, uh, for the people around you. And that's what the book of Leviticus is really all about. It's about God taking his group of people and setting them apart uh, so that they can then be his voice, his ambassadors, his love, his mercy, his life-giving presence to the other nations around them. And he does that by using practices and rituals and customs that are all familiar to the ancient world and ancient people. And so my hope is that um, for those of us who Restore who've been following Jesus a long time, and there's a lot of us at Restore who have either just recently started following Jesus or we are learning to follow Jesus, um, that we would be able to release ourselves from this fear of, I've got to get everything right before I come to God, before I serve God, before I lead a meeting house, before I share my faith with others, before I post this on Facebook, whatever it is for each of us, before I speak up in my meeting house, I got to have a bigger, better, more complete understanding. And the reality is, friends, and I mean this with all my heart, the reality is I think God takes us where we are based on our understanding of God, um, however incomplete or complete we may feel that that is, um, and uses that to begin to shape us and mold us uh, and change us from the inside out. And that's exactly what the book of Leviticus says. It shows that there's this God of humility who comes to his people and based on their understanding and their cultural practices and their rituals, he meets them where they are and he begins to use those things uh, to shape them and change them and heal them um, from the brokenness in their life and their own sin. And so that's really where we get to um, at the second portion of the Day of Atonement. So um, the Day of Atonement could kind of cheekily be called uh, the tale of two goats, if you will, right? It's about two goats. And the first goat, which we covered last week, um, is essentially the goat that uh, is brought into the presence of the temple, right? It's killed first, uh, and, or the tabernacle, not the temple, but it's killed first, and the body is discarded, but the blood, which was the life of the goat, is brought into the presence of God. And what that symbolized, again, it's about the symbolism to the people is that their old way of life that they're used to, that's been tainted by death, and sin, and injustice, and corruption, and hatred, and disease, and death, and suffering. God is doing away with that, like the goat. He's, he's killing death. He's killing suffering. He's defeating these things. He's doing away with them. He desires for them not to be a part of their life with him. And yet, the part of the goat that is life, its blood, is preserved and brought into his presence. And so in a very real way, this is how I would... And again, this is, again, a metaphor. It's symbolism. 
there is a no way this is metaphor going to be complete and total truth. Um, but this is how one way I think we could understand it is um, God takes all of the broken parts of our life and begins to heal us from those by taking them away so that we can become who we actually truly are, who we were meant to be. And he does that by healing us of our brokenness um, and the ways that we have been um, shaped and damaged and hurt um, by injustice and sin and death around us um, so that we can become more of who we truly are. And so that to me is what the symbolism is um, with that goat, is that those old parts of us, um, that the trauma that we've had, the shame that we've experienced, maybe the hatred that, right, like all of these ways that the broken world has hurt us um, or broken us or traumatized us in some way, God says, I'm doing away with that. And I'm bringing the part of you that really is you before the trauma, before the brokenness, before the pain, and I'm bringing that back into my presence so that you could live life with me. And that's really what the first goat is doing. The second goat uh, is called the scapegoat. And it is um, loaded up with the people's sins. Symbolically, again, the, the Aaron, the high priest, places his, his hands on the goat and he presses down hard. And when that happens, all of the Israelites' guilt and their shame and their sins and their failures and their corruption uh, and all the times that they manipulate one another, that they act dishonestly, they cheat on their spouse, they um, cheat their neighbor, like whatever it is that they're doing, um, they ignore the needs of of those who are broken or in poverty around them. All of those things are loaded symbolically up onto this goat, and the goat is sent off into the wilderness. And so I know this is a bit of a longer intro, and I, I wanted to take a bit of a longer intro. Um, well, I'm going to wrap right at 20 here. I've got three minutes and 30 seconds. Um, but what that means is um, this shows us more about the heart of God, um, and it shows us a God who in love and in humility and in grace is not interested in accusing us. He doesn't send the goat into the middle of the camp and say, okay, look at all you wicked, awful, bad people. Like, look how overladen this guilt is with all, this goat is with all of your guilt and shame and burdens. Like, look, it can hardly stand up. Like, it doesn't put it on a pedestal in the middle of the camp to remind them of how bad they are. Um, the goat is sent off into the wilderness. It's sent away from the life of the people. It's sent away from their life with God into the wilderness where it is no more. It's not a topic for discussion. It's not in God's presence. God doesn't see it. The people don't see it. Like it's sending it away. And why that is so beautiful and so important for us to understand is I actually think that for some of us, this should radically, not just somewhat, but radically reshape the way that we think about God and the way that we think he approaches us and our sin. Um, so I will show you what I mean by that by just giving you an example in my own life. So I have struggled most of my life with excessive, excessive guilt. Um, some of it is a byproduct of a mental illness that I struggle with called obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, I tend to sometimes feel guilty about things I shouldn't feel guilty about, or if I should feel guilty about them, I have no idea how guilty I should feel about them. And so even if it's something that maybe you would, someone else might feel moderately guilty about, I end up feeling guilty about for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, at different times in my life, it's made me so depressed and overwhelmed with my own guilt and shame that it's 
despaired me of life and I haven't wanted to live anymore and have even at times felt suicidal over this. Um, and all of this stems from very much what I think was a false or kind of broken view of God and that his primary interest in me, the primary reason he loves me, the primary reason he gives me good things, um, the primary reason he's involved in my life at all, the primary reason he died for me was to um, deal with my sin. Okay, so I'm choosing my words very carefully here by the word primary. Does God deal with my sin? Of course he does. He's doing it with the people here in the scapegoat. He'll do it in Psalms 103, which we'll read. He'll do it with the woman who's caught in adultery in John 8, which we'll read tonight. Um, of course he's not ignoring our sin or saying, oh, it's no big deal. Um, but how he approaches us in our failings and our sins makes all the difference in how we experience God and the spiritual health um, just of our Christian walk. And so for me, for years, I lived in a very disruptive um, spiritual life because I thought that God's main purpose in my life, primary obsession with me, primary focus of me, was the things I was doing wrong. And if, if you really want to know the truth, um, it's one of the reasons that I took so long to decide whether or not I wanted to start Restore because uh, I was overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and not being able to be perfect and um, and feeling just there was just an overwhelming sense of just failure on my part. And I thought there's no way God would want someone like me to ever lead a church. And, and so my primary... Um, I thought because I wasn't being able to be perfect in so many different ways that I was failing God's primary task for my life, his primary goal for my life, his primary mission for my life. And so for a lot of us, when we sin, when we mess up, when we say things to our kids that we regret later or to our spouse, um, we say things that are ugly or we regret later. Or um, if you're like me, I get more passive aggressive than I want to be sometimes. Sometimes I get more angry and more arrogant than I want to be sometimes. Sometimes I give into lust way more than I want to sometimes. Um, and, and if we feel that, that by doing those things, we have forsaken or abandoned or let down God's primary work in our life, then what, what's going to happen is we're going to end up oftentimes feeling excessively guilty, and we're also going to be wondering when and how God's going to punish us, because we get into this very legalistic mindset of, ah, I just failed God's primary purpose in my life, therefore he's most likely going to withhold blessings from me, right? If the only reason he's blessing me is to make me into a better person, uh, and I'm not a better person, then why should he bother blessing me? Um, the only reason he's not punishing me is because I'm not sinning. If I do sin, then he must start punishing me, because the only reason he wasn't punishing me before is because I wasn't sinning, right? And so you get you get into a lot of very unhealthy spiritual, um, I think, balance in your life. And so that's the other reason that I think this is so important. And, and I'm taking a little bit of extra time tonight to, to try and frame this for us. Um, because if we, it, right, so in two ways, if we wait, just like we said at the very beginning, till we have this complete better fulfillment, full picture of God before we really engage in our spiritual lives and in our Christian life, then I think we're going to wait for something that will never come, and we're going to be just gripped by fear and a sense of inadequacy, and it'll really shape how we decide to serve and love and care for um, the people around us. Um, but the second piece is, if we see God's primary concern in our life is our sin and dealing with our sin, um, and again, I'm choosing my words carefully with the word primary, 
If he's primarily concerned with that, then when we fail that, we feel like we failed God's primary purpose for us, his, maybe even his primary reason for creating us, which if I'm being honest, um, there were two particular points in my life where I got very, very suicidal and came very close to ending my life. Uh, and in both of those times, I felt like I had failed God's primary purpose for making me, for creating me. And if I had failed that, then why does it bother if I exist at all anymore? And I know um, I, I'm, I'm being vulnerable intentionally because I want us to really wrestle with this tonight. Because for some of us, I think this could be very spiritually life-changing. We spend our whole life either feeling inadequate when we approach the presence of God, or we feel like failures when we're in the presence of God. Um, and Leviticus tells us that neither of those things are true. That when we sin, we have not failed God's primary purpose. We've not failed his reason for creating us. And when we don't quite have it all together, and maybe we don't have quite the complete picture we want to yet, um, that doesn't mean that he can't use us, that we can't be um, healthy members of his church and his community. Um, and so um, whether it's fear or whether it's guilt that really shapes your spiritual life, I would imagine most of us have had either one or two, or if you're like me, both of those things significantly shape your life. And so my prayer as your pastor, the thing I'm praying about this week so much for us uh, and your meeting house leaders have been praying for you about is I want us to find freedom from that. I want us to find freedom from the guilt and the fear uh, that keeps us experiencing the fullness and the completeness that God has for us. I want us to understand that God's primary concern in our life is not to accuse us, but to free us to live abundant life in his presence.